here's the thing. Ever wonder why aspiring authors spend so much time trying to crack the code about how to get published? That's because no one who's in the daily grind like me has put all the pieces together in one place. It's Carly Waters here, and as your senior literary agent on the podcast with 15 years of experience in publishing, selling books, and teaching the business of publishing, I'm here to give you the clarity that will turn this hobby into a career. Inside my course, The Author's Publishing Playbook, we have monthly live Q&A sessions to cover your specific issues, but for the rest, there are over 40 video lessons that equal 10 hours of learning with professionally edited transcripts. The course will solve all your writerly problems, except write your book for you. That's on you. My course is a masterclass designed to teach writers how to prepare, pitch, publish, and promote their book in today's competitive publishing landscape. It's for career-driven writers, aspiring and published, who want to understand how to succeed in the business of books. There are over 20 worksheets, downloads, and plug-and-play templates for editing, querying, and marketing. You get lifetime access for the entire six-module course as soon as you purchase. As new content's added, you have access to that as well. Don't forget, there's a mobile app on top of computer access you can learn on the go. Get started today to gain the career you've only dreamed about. And you guys get a discount. So at checkout, carlywaters.com course, use code POD15. That's code POD15 when you check out for 15% off. That's carlywaters.com course, use code POD15. That's code POD15 when you check out for 15% off. See you inside the course. Hi, everyone. This is Cece. If you're a fan of books with hooks, then you've probably heard me use the term interiority. I often catch myself saying things like, these pages need more interiority, or the interiority here needs work. And that's because interiority is a super important element of storytelling. It's what makes books unique. But as it turns out, a lot of you have questions about what exactly is interiority and how to properly weave it into stories, which is why I'm teaching my popular writing interiority class in a new two-day format. We'll meet on Thursday, June 6 at 8 p.m. via Zoom to cover all things interiority, including the difference between interiority and emotions, how interiority is different from telling, how to leverage interiority into plot points, how to strike a balance between interiority and mystery, and more. And then we'll meet again for a live cozy Q&A session on Monday, June 10th, also at 8 p.m. via Zoom, in which you'll have the opportunity to turn your camera on if you choose. If you're interested, check out the link in my bio on Instagram, and I hope to see you there. there and welcome to our show, The Shit No One Tells You About Writing. I'm Bianca Murray and I'm joined by Carly Waters and Cece Lira from PS Literary Agency. Today's guest was born and raised in Washington State. She is a former bookseller and the author of Communion, A Culinary Journey Through Vietnam, a Gourmand World Cookbook Award winner and the Map of Lost Memories at an Edgar Award finalist for Best First Novel. She lives in Los Angeles with her husband, Jim, and their dog, Mabel. Love and Saffron is her second novel. It's my pleasure to welcome Kim Fay. Kim, welcome to the show. Thank you, Bianca. It's wonderful to be here. Anyone who listens to the podcast regularly knows that I am a huge fan of independent bookstores, and I absolutely yes. adore booksellers because here is the thing. Nobody does more work to get books into the right hands than your booksellers. I've Amen. known there's there's a bookseller in Toronto who a ton of people message me to say, I wouldn't have picked up your book if it wasn't for Scott, 
who I went into the bookstore to buy something else. And he told me, no, that's crap. You don't want to buy that book. Rather buy this book. And I went to go and thank him. And I actually caught him in the act of recommending my book to someone else, which was absolutely amazing. So can you tell us a bit about your beginnings as an indie bookseller and how that kind of influenced your journey as a writer? Of course. I was a year out of college and I was working as a receptionist for a company. I was miserable. I'd read, have a job that you can just forget about when you go home and write at night. And I was just miserable in this job. And Christmas was coming and the Elliott Bay Book Company in Seattle had these coveted gift wrapper jobs. If you could become a gift wrapper, that was your path into maybe becoming a bookseller. And this was 1989. Bookstores were it. There were no other outlets for books. And so I got one of the coveted jobs and I went from being a gift wrapper to being a bookseller. And I was raised, I was a reader, but I didn't have access to a lot of books. I was raised in small towns. I read a lot of romance. I read a lot of teen romance. And so when I started working full-time at Elliott Bay, oh my gosh, it was just an explosion of ideas and books and authors. And not only that, readers, just the amount of readers who were out there. And I veered from writing teen romance and that sort of thing to starting to really look at what fiction could be, what it could do, how how big fiction is. I guess I didn't realize that until I started working at the bookstore. I was there for almost six years. It was one of the most incredible and memorable experiences of my life. I still think about it all the time. It defined me. It shaped who I am. I love hearing about booksellers who've become writers and seeing their success because I firmly believe that in order to be a good writer, you have to be a voracious reader. You cannot write unless you love storytelling and unless you love books. And who loves books more than booksellers? This is so true. What did we spend all of our time talking about when we weren't selling a book to a person? We were talking about books to each other. We gossiped about books. We gossiped about authors. We talked about authors the way other people talked about movie stars. An author, I can remember sitting in the front row of reading, shaking, because an author who I wanted to meet was there with all of their hardcovers stacked in my lap. So it's just, I don't know if it's in your genes. I don't know what it is, but it is certainly a bug. And once you get it, you've got it. Absolutely. And authors are our rock stars. So did you have formal training in terms of writing when you were studying or not really? I did take English classes in college. I actually studied broadcast journalism, which nobody would know from any of my interviews. That was just not the path for me. And I took one dedicated class on novel writing when I was a senior in college. But mostly, I think it just came from reading. And then over the course of the years, taking workshops, I workshopped with John Retchie here in LA for many years. And he was tough and smart. And he really helped me not just find my way, but also curb myself and understand what I could write and what I couldn't. I wrote my first novel when I was 10. I didn't publish my first novel until I was 45. So let's just say I learned a lot along the way, just trial and error and just writing, 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 and more writing. I love that you said he was tough because we tell our listeners all the time, you need writing groups, you need beta readers. You go to your friends for when you need someone to tell you that you are amazing and everything you do is amazing. But That's that why we is, have moms. <laughs> yeah, you know, moms, friends, cheerleaders, whoever. 
we spoke to the author Lily King about writers mm. and lovers last year. And in that book, there's Muriel who champions the writer. And we always say, find your Muriel. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, you need to find that person who's going to be tough and yes. who's going to kind of tell it to you like it is. Not someone who's going to put you down and make you want to mm -hmm. give up writing, but certainly someone who holds you to higher account and who says, mm -hmm. you can do better than this. And now I want to see you doing better. Yes. Also, somebody who will talk to you about craft. I guess I look for teachers who are interested in what I'm writing, not what they would have written, and who will not only look at big pictures, but get down to the nitty gritty. I still remember one time I had written this scene and it took place in Southeast Asia where I've spent a lot of time and I compared the shape of something to a cauliflower. And John said to me, why would you pick something that is so unrelated to anything you're writing about? It's not related to anything. You just picked a shape. He goes, think about what you're writing. Think about your words. Choose your words carefully. It sounds little, but you just took me to a dinner table in the Midwest, somewhere completely out of your story. And so it was everything from, you know, big picture on how to hold my story together to just these small things that you don't realize. Writing is a craft and sentences matter. Every sentence matters. And it's really important as a writer to study that. I read a lot of poetry when I write fiction because I find poetry really helps me with the rhythm of language and with word choice, being very careful and being true to my story. And intentionality is extremely, extremely important. And in reading Love and Saffron, I could definitely get that, if not writing poetry, that you read poetry because that came through very much in that. Before we talk about the book itself, I want to mm -hmm. discuss your love of cooking and your love of food, <laughs> yes. because I think that was the first book you published before you wrote fiction. And something that I'm always telling my creative writing students is write about things that you are passionate about, mm -hmm. whether it's food, whether it's decor, whether it's design or fashion, or whether it's about fighting the patriarchy or whatever the case <laughs> may be is. Write about something that gets you excited or gets your blood boiling because writing mm -hmm. is so difficult and coming to the blank page day after day can be really, really tough. And what drives you to put your butt in the chair is this thing that you're passionate about. And this is something you've incorporated into your work. So could you tell us a bit more about that? Well, and it's interesting because I wrote Communion, A Culinary Journey Through Vietnam, which was a food and travel memoir. And then I went on to write a historical novel that didn't have any food in it. And I was asked often, why wasn't there any food in it? And it was interesting because I love that book, but it was missing parts of me. And I have a feeling that if I had started writing about food in that book, it would have taken over and it would have become a completely different novel. I knew I had wanted to write a novel in which food was important. And when the pandemic started, I was working on something completely different and this novel just started pouring out. And I realized that it's not food that I've always wanted to write about. It's the connection that food gives us. It's the way that people connect over food. It's the way we connect over meals. It's the way that cultures are bridged over a dinner table. And so that was an interesting discovery for me that it wasn't food itself that was so important, but it was the relationships that were forged. And as you say about passion, once this passion was it was the anchor of this book. It poured out in three months. It took me 14 years to write my first book. And then 10 years later, three months to write this book. 
So I think your advice to make sure your passion is deep in what you're writing is essential. How many words is this book? Because it kind of feels <laughs> like novella length. It is a you, novella length. So, I, I would have to look up, but it's probably in the 20,000 range. When I wrote it, I wasn't writing it for publication. I was writing it at the beginning of the pandemic as a gift for two friends. I wanted to provide something really gentle, something comforting. And I had this idea in mind that it would be read in an afternoon. I didn't want it to take any longer than that. I envisioned these friends receiving the manuscript that I printed and sent to them, brewing a cup of tea and sitting with this for an afternoon and having it take them somewhere and having it serve as a bit of a balm and a comfort. And that's the reason it is the length it is. And when I worked with my editor, we could have built the book out, but she felt that a lot of its beauty was in its kind of gem-like length. Yeah. For our listeners, so we have this Books with Hook segment where we have two literary agents reading query letters and first mm -hmm. pages to try and help mm -hmm. writers polish them up to land their agents. And we're always saying a novel is around about 80,000 words. You can get away <laughs> with sort of 70,000, etc. There are always exceptions. We give you the yes. rules, but tons of people break those rules really well. And what Kim has done here is this is a 20,000 word novel and it's come out in hardcover and it's the number one indie next pick, which means that all of these booksellers across the country that belong to the American Booksellers Association have decided it's their favorite book that's coming out. So we give you these rules, but that's not to say that you can't write a shorter novel and every novel is as long as it needs to be and it shouldn't be one yes. word longer. That is so well said. Books are interesting because as much as it's about intentionality, books also tell you what they want. And if you stop listening, then you'll end up with something too long, too short, in the wrong point of view. I wrote my first novel in first person for years, and I think that's what took me so long. It wasn't until I shifted POV that all of a sudden it just started tumbling out. But in that wrong point of view, it had no motion. And the same thing, Love and Saffron's written in letters. I don't think it could have been written any other way. That was how it started. And once I followed that, the book guided me forward in that yeah. um, format. And for our listeners, so it's about two women who are writing letters to each other. It's two strangers who begin corresponding in the 60s. And these letters go backwards and forwards. And it's just so delightful. It took me back to days when I was writing a ton of letters before email and all of these things and the kind of fun you could just have with letters and also this kind of confessional state that writing letters can become. It almost feels like going to confession because you're not seeing this person in front of you. You're not having a conversation with them. And also it's not like email. You send an email and you know that person's going to get it like in a split second. Whereas there's something about a letter that you know it's going to take time to get to that person. It's going to take time for them to read it and then write a response and for you to get that response. And it just made me so nostalgic for that. And this book felt like such a warm hug. I think it came out Love at the that. exact right time because the agents on the show are saying that people want uplifting stories now. They don't want mm -hmm. dark and bleak stories. People want books that feel like hugs. And this book was just delightful. And then built into it are these recipes, the discussion mm -hmm. of food and community around food and the bigger picture around it in terms of being a citizen of the world, etc., etc. So I don't cook. I'm terrible <laughs> cook. And this book had me like, going, oh, man, I want to try this. I want to try that. So I was mm -hmm. marking up passages for my husband who does cook. 
were there challenges in terms of the epistolary form? Because we've said before on the podcast that when you're writing something in the epistolary form in letters, it's a lot of telling. Whereas most times we tell writers, show, don't tell, show, Mm -hmm. don't tell. But a letter immediately means you are writing backstory because you are writing from a place after things have happened and you are now summarizing these things that happened. So was this ever a challenge for you in terms of that? This is not going to be a satisfying answer for writers because this book literally flowed out of me. As I said, I've been writing since, well, I'm 55 now, so I've been writing for decades. And I think this must have been sitting inside me somewhere. There must have been these stories that wanted to be told. The pandemic also really created this unique state where you were kind of in this, not a limbo, but you were in this strange state where the world had kind of stopped moving and was moving. And I just disappeared down this hole. And I think it also like you, I wrote letters. I wrote letters when I was little, when I was a little girl, I had pen pals, I wrote to friends across town, I wrote to my family, I wrote to grandparents. So writing a Letters felt natural to me, and it almost felt like coming home a little bit. I hadn't realized how much I missed it until I started writing. And as these women just went back and forth, I felt like I was chasing them. You know, I felt like I was following behind. I was just in this really special place with them. And there's such intimacy in letter writing. You talked about the confessional aspect of it, but there's just this intimacy of sitting, writing a letter, putting your hand to the page, holding another person in your thoughts while you're also exploring your own thoughts. And I really, I needed that during this time. And I think that's why perhaps it came more easily than it would have at a different point in time. Yeah. And for our listeners, if you're ever in that kind of glorious phase of writing, don't second guess it. Don't start sending out bits of it for feedback and Mm. critique, because that's going to interrupt the flow of it. Just keep going. Just keep going. And then when it's done, you can come back and start polishing. But when writing becomes like a fever dream, that is the best possible state of writing. And it doesn't happen often. So you grab it in and you just run with it. Can you tell us, Kim, how your agent pitched it to the publisher? Because this is something we're always trying to tell our listeners Mm -hmm. as well. Know your genre, know how to pitch it, how to talk about your work. So do you know what books this was compared to in terms of comps? what genre it was pitched as at the stage that it went out to Mm -hmm. Putnam? It's interesting because, well, first of all, this book was a surprise to my agent because I'd been writing something completely different. And I hadn't even planned to send it to her until a friend mentioned that I should. Then I sent it to her and she said, what the heck? Where, where on earth did this come from? And I said, hello, pandemic. It came out of this place. So we talked about it a lot. She didn't really have many revisions on it. And she pitched it. It was a a pretty easy to do comps because of 84 Charing Cross Road, which is actually a memoir in letters. And then there's a wonderful novel, Meet Me at the Museum, which is also told in letters. So it was very easy to find the comps for it. But I think the main thing she did is she pitched it in the fall of 2020. So we were still very deep into a lot of darkness in the country, not only the pandemic, but we had the social uprisings, we had the elections, there was a lot happening. And she pitched it 
as an antidote, as a balm, as something that could bring readers some joy and maybe offer them that warm hug, that big hug that you were talking about. And it's not always pleasant as a reader to think about this, but sometimes there's just a time for a book. At another time, it wouldn't have been the right time for this book, but this book was written when it was meant to be written, but it was also sent out when it was meant to be sent out. And my editor actually wrote a note in the galley, or I guess they call them arcs now that I'm showing my age, but she wrote how she hadn't acquired a book in 10 months and she was really fearful that she wasn't going to find a book to fall in love with. You know, she had was experiencing the dark moments of this time period too. And Love and Saffron had lifted her out of that. I also got very, I was very fortunate in finding the perfect editor for this book, the editor who truly connected with it. Um, both Kate Garrick, my agent, and Tara Singh Carlson, my editor. Wow, wow, I'm just, I'm blessed. Tara is amazing. We've actually had her on the podcast before, and she was even <laughs> speaking about how she hadn't acquired a book for a long time when she acquired Where the Crawdads Sing. And she spoke about the feeling she gets when she knows that the book is right. So I could actually picture Tara sitting there having <laughs> all the warm and fuzzy happies when, when she opened this. Yeah. And as you were talking, it reminded me of the Mary Oliver quote. Someone oh. I love once gave me a box full of darkness. It took me years to understand that this too was a gift. I feel like COVID was your box full of darkness and that this book is the gift that has come from that. That is very true. That is such a, and I love Mary Oliver and how I don't know that quote. So I love that I, I learned that one today. But it, it is, I mean, I hate to, to thank the pandemic for anything because of everything that it's taken away from so many people. But I'm also grateful that maybe something beautiful, I was able to, to produce something beautiful out of it. I'm also grateful to it because it put me on a new path. I don't think I'll ever write in the old way again. I think that I will, if my heart is not pulling me forward, and if I'm not trusting my heart to go forward, then I know that I just need to stop. And that's probably why it's been 10 years since I've written a novel. This also showed me what I want to write. I've always wanted to write family stories. And there is so much fan. I'm not, I don't have a memoir in me. And it would be ridiculous for me to write one. But I was able to bring so much of my family and my friendships and my relationships into this book. And that was really exciting to me as a writer. We just registered my youngest kid for kindergarten. I cannot believe it. One of the tricky things about my kids being in French immersion school and not having French as a language myself is I'm honestly worried about how I'm going to assist with homework as they get bigger. They're young now, but I see it coming. We are honestly so lucky, though, to live in a city that's bilingual and we have bilingual friends and francophone friends. So I know it's going to be easy for our kids to pick it up. Me, on the other hand, I am worried about me. I grew up somewhere where French class was not taken seriously, and now I have to make up the difference. And that's where Rosetta Stone comes in. As the most trusted language learning program available on desktop or as an app, it really immerses you in the language you want to learn. Rosetta Stone teaches through immersion, which is a proven way to learn a language. Instead of memorizing and drilling vocabulary words, you learn by matching audio from native speakers to visuals, reading stories, participating in dialogues, and other practical language skills to fast track your ability to communicate fluently. There are no English translations in the product. You're honestly getting trained to listen, speak, read, write, and think in your new language, which is what everybody wants. 
Rosetta Stone users especially love the speech recognition feature. As you practice speaking, Rosetta Stone uses advanced voice recognition technology to match your audio, the audio from native speakers, and then give you feedback on how well you're pronunciating the words so you can really hone those pronunciations. It offers 25 languages from Spanish, French, Italian, German, Chinese, Korean, Japanese, even Dutch, Arabic, and Polish. This is the best language program because they have been an expert in the language learning field for 30 years and used by millions. Thousands of companies and government organizations use Rosetta Stone to support language training online. Of all the apps, Rosetta Stone uses the best speech recognition technology, so it compares your sound waves to those of a native speaker for better feedback to improve. They have a patented speech recognition engine called True Accent, which is built into the program. As you practice speaking, you'll get feedback on how well you're pronouncing words. The other language learning apps use speech recognition to detect what you said, but Rosetta Stone tells you how well you said it compared to native speakers. It's like having a personal trainer for your accent. Think about the cost of a one month language course. Think about the cost of one hour private tutoring sessions. With Rosetta Stone, you enjoy lifetime membership and accessibility on desktop or app. We have a special offer for you guys. That's 50% off. That's a lifetime access to 25 language courses on Rosetta Stone for 50% off. This is a steal. Do not put off learning that language. There is no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, the shit no one tells you about writing listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. That We want you guys to go visit rosettastone.com slash today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com slash today, today. Are you looking for beta readers, some of whom might potentially become writing group members down the line? Are you wanting to be matched up with those writing in a similar genre or time zone so they can critique your work as you critique theirs at the same time? Your manuscript doesn't have to be complete to sign up for this 3,000 word evaluation. This particular matchup will be open to registrations from now until the 2nd of June, with the matchup emails going out on the 3rd of June. For more information and to register, go to biancamaray.com, look for the beta reader matchup page, and please spread the word. The more writers we have signed up, the better the matches will be. Today's guest has lived coast to coast, but with her extended family in North Alabama, her roots run southern deep. She teaches high school English and writes in local coffee shops near her home outside of Houston. In her free time, she likes to visit parks with her three daughters, watch quirky films with her husband, and attempt to keep pace with her rescue lab mixes. It's my pleasure to welcome Kristen Bird. Kristen, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. Yeah, it's wonderful having you here. And the book that we're going to be discussing today for the listeners is The Night She Went Missing. This is Kristen's debut novel, a real twisty-turny page-turner of a book, which I thoroughly, thoroughly enjoyed. So we're going to be picking your brain as much as possible. Something that I found to be really interesting, we will discuss the book shortly, but something that I found really interesting is in your acknowledgement, she wrote literary agent Catherine Cho was kind enough to pass along my manuscript to my agent, Haley Steed, who saw the potential for this project and spent months giving editorial feedback to shape the story into a cohesive narrative. And that's a question we often get on the show, especially for Carly and Cece. If you send it on to the wrong agent, are they prepared to share the manuscript with other people in the agency who they think are better suited? And it sounds like that's what happened in this instance. Could you take us through that? Sure. And I also just wanted to say thank you so much for having me. I'm an avid listener. I think I've listened to all the back episodes by now. (laughs) 
So yes, it was very serendipitous how I got my agent, but basically what you said happened, except for I was going through Manuscript Wishlist Academy and I was looking for anyone who was looking for a book in the vein of Liam Moriarty or an author like that. And so I'd gotten to the C's, Catherine Cho, (laughs) and I sent that on to her. And it was actually her last day at the agency that she was at. And she said, go ahead and send it on to me, but actually send it to this different address because I'm moving agencies tomorrow. And so I kind of thought, oh, it's going to get lost in the shuffle. I probably won't hear anything about this. But she came back to me a week later and said, the story isn't for me to represent, but my new desk mate actually represents this genre. And she would like to take a look. Are you okay if I pass it on to her? And of course, I was thrilled for her to pass it on. So yes, that was a great example of agents talking to one another and sharing their slush pile with each other. That's amazing. Because sometimes you go onto an agency's webpage and you're looking and there's like three or four agents and one likes one thing that you're kind of trying to do, but the other one maybe likes a comp that you feel strongly about and you sit there and become Sophie's choice. Who do you submit to? And it's so wonderful to know that many agents work in this way. They'll go, look, it's not for me, but it may be for my colleagues. So for our listeners, can you just give them an overview of the novel? Like what is at the heart of the novel in terms of the story? Sure. So the basic premise of the novel is that 18-year-old Emily Callahan has gone missing, and she's been missing for 10 weeks. And at this point, they basically think that she is dead. And so they have planned her funeral. And she's found floating in the Galveston Harbor on the day of her funeral. And she is alive, but unconscious. And so then the trajectory of the novel is really three mothers on the island, her mother, and then two mothers of potential perpetrators, we don't really know, trying to figure out what happened the night she went missing, and then also how they can best protect their own children. And so really at the heart of the novel is that feeling that mothers have to protect their kids at all costs, regardless of what age they are. Yeah, and that immediately lends itself to very high stakes, because like you say, there's nothing more fiercely protective than a mother who's trying to protect her child, even if her child has potentially done bad things, etc, etc. So the stakes are instantly high. And for our listeners, Kristen did a prologue. Dun, dun, dun. So Kristen, you'll know that Carly and Cece and myself are often like, mm, we're not loving the prologue. Every now and again, we will suggest a prologue. So I just want to give a bit of a reading of how your prologue begins. And the prologue begins with Emily who is the 18-year-old who went missing. So just reading it for our listeners. They find me face up in the murky water of the harbor on the day of my funeral. Or memorial service, whatever. It's not like there's much difference. Dead is dead. Except I'm not. I am not dead. I would pinch myself if I could move. And then it goes into the rest of the scene. So what a gripping opening. Was the prologue always there or is it something that you added later? So readers of this novel will find quickly that Emily's voice comes in and out throughout the narrative, but it's not the primary voice. So actually, it was just chapter one originally, and I wasn't trying to pull one over. I know that sometimes Carly and Cece say that as well, but it was a matter of we actually didn't know how to make Emily's chapters fit because they are outside of the timeline of the novel for most of the novel because they are when she's found and we're going back to the events leading up to her being 
being found with the mothers. So it was originally chapter one, and then the next Emily chapter was also a chapter, and then the next Emily chapter was a chapter. But my editor, I think very astutely, ended up making all of the Emily chapters until the timelines merge standalone, like, excerpts. They aren't even given a chapter number. So all that to say, I think they decided to call this a prologue because there wasn't really anything else to situate the reader into the story. They're either used to chapter one or a prologue. But if we just start with Emily, (laughs) it might have been a little more confusing. So like I said, originally it was just a normal chapter. And I think that's how I like for prologues to be. I don't like it to be, let's just take a scene from the end of the book and throw it up front. But because her voice keeps coming back throughout the narrative at this point in her life, I think that's why it worked as a prologue. Yeah, and they work as these kind of interludes in between these other chapters. And so Emily writes in the first person. So it's her voice, it's I. She's in this coma or in the Mm -hmm. state and she's speaking and it's all I, but then all the other chapters. So what you have four narrators in total. We've got the mothers and they're all told in third person close. And then we have Emily who's younger, who's speaking in the first person I. So I know that many of our listeners out there struggle when they have a big cast like this because four main characters in terms of narrative voice is a lot to juggle. If you have one character to expand in an 80,000 word novel, it's difficult. If you have two characters, then that means each only gets 40,000 words. When you do this, you are greatly reducing the amount of time that the reader has to connect with each of these women. So as you were writing it, what were the challenges you were facing in terms of trying to manage such a huge ensemble cast? So let me just say too, that when I actually wrote the first draft, there were like nine or 10 points of view. It was a mess. <laughs> but I, for our listeners, I just had a sip of coffee and almost just spat it out all over my laptop. So okay, carry on. So I obviously didn't know who I wanted to tell the story <laughs> originally. And I do say that I write pretty unreadable first drafts that I allow myself to do that so that I can get the story on the page. So after that point, my agent was generous enough to still take it when it had so many voices <laughs> because I really thought that that would be okay because I guess I was thinking it's in third person, that will be all right. But I wasn't really taking into account the third person over the shoulder kind of look that I was doing and how I was inside of their heads and how it just didn't work with that many characters. So when we narrowed it down, I thought it was important to have Emily's mother, of course, because she's going to be like the controlling arc of the story. Basically, we need to feel what she feels in order to be invested in the story. And then I wanted two different mothers of possible perpetrators, because I didn't want it to be so obvious who did it. And because I wanted to see different mothers reactions to their children, because through most of the novel, both of the mothers aren't sure if one of their children may have done this. So I wanted to see two different reactions to that and how their behaviors would be. I have actually a degree in journalism as my undergrad. And so I think that that actually taught me to write really concisely in terms of get to know a person really quickly. And so I think that's why I was able to do four different characters and still hopefully the reader feels like they've gotten to know each of them. And then also, before I wrote this book, or while I was right at the beginning stages, I went and took Leanne Moriarty's Big Little Lies, 
and I outlined what she did in each chapter personally for myself so that I could see how she did it. So that was like my little mini master's class that I just did for myself. (laughs) That's amazing because, you know, we always say that through reading, critical reading, not just sitting being a passive recipient of this entertainment. If we're reading very critically, that is the best way to learn how somebody did it. And let's be honest, Leon Moriarty is a master at juggling all of these different characters and doing these character sketches so quickly that you get on board with them. And you did the same here. We didn't have a lot of time with each of these women. We really didn't. And yet we got a very strong sense of them. And what I loved is the way we saw the other characters through each of their eyes. So one of them is observing the other one who then becomes a point of view character. And we always believe the first narrator. So when the first narrator has an unfavorable impression of someone or doesn't like someone, we tend to go, yeah, we believe you. We're on board with you. And then we get into the other character's perspective and suddenly we're like, oh, is this person that bad? I don't, I don't know if this person's that bad. I quite like this person. I understand why they are the way they are. Maybe that other character doesn't have the information on them. And that's so true to life. I often joke that some of my very best friends were people that I actively disliked when I first met them. So we never really know someone until we start getting to know them. Yes, I agree completely. And it was important for me to have scenes where they were interacting with each other. And it was especially important for me by the end of the book to have a scene where all of the women in the story are together in one room, because I thought that we needed to see how they would actually speak to one another. And even though it is still told from one character's perspective, and you're mostly inside her head, she is observing everyone in the room, like you said. Yeah. And how did you decide in that instance, who would be the point of view character? Because that's something that people struggle with in an ensemble cast. They kind of go, oh, I'm going to do a rotating character one, character two, character three. But then sometimes a scene is told from character three's perspective when it would have worked so much better as character one. So how was it that you decided who was going to be the point of view character in that instance? I thought that was a really pivotal scene. So I put it in the mind of the person that I think is the main character of the story, which is Catherine Emily's mother, even though you could argue that they're fairly balanced in terms of the time that each of the women get on stage. Like I said, I feel like her feelings and emotions really move the story forward. And so it starts with her and then it actually shifts to another's perspective. But I feel like she's at least giving us the foundation and the tone of the situation with everyone in the room and before it actually switches into a different perspective. Yeah, really, really wonderfully done. So Kristen, could you read for us your query letter that you were sending out to agents when you first started querying this novel? Because I think it's always so helpful for our listeners to hear how other people did it. And like you say, the novel wasn't in the best shape when you sent it out, and yet you still got an agent, which proves again that something doesn't have to be perfect for it to resonate with the right person. That's right. And I knew I had gotten it as perfect as I could make it, and I didn't know what else to do with it. And I didn't have money to pay a big shot editor (laughs) to take a look at it. So that's why I polished it as best as I could and then went ahead and sent it out. I do think it's important, though, that you get to that point where you're like, I've done everything I can. That's possible. So the query letter I'm going to read is actually to a different agent. But the reason I'm doing that is because when I sent my letter to Catherine, I personalized 
it for her, and she actually asked for a different style of query letter than some agents do. She wanted more of a synopsis in the middle of the query letter instead of just like a pitch with a hook, which is what we often talk about. So this is a pretty standard one that I sent out, but I won't use the name of the agent here. Dear Miss, I recently listened to a recording of your interview on Blank Podcast, and several months ago, I listened to you on the Ride or Die Podcast. I enjoyed hearing the story about how you got started as a literary agent, especially when you confessed that you enjoy reading genre fiction and were encouraged to pursue this love. I've been an English teacher for 14 years, like you once were, and I too find that in my world, sometimes genre fiction or even upmarket fiction is underappreciated. All this to say that I enjoyed hearing your insights into the publishing world, and I am hopeful that you might take a look at my 86,000 word women's fiction novel, Out of the Deep. So it had a different title at the time. 18-year-old Emily Callahan has been missing for 10 weeks. Today, her family, one of the wealthiest and most influential on Galveston Island, gathers for her memorial service, except she's not dead. When Emily is found floating face up in the Galveston Harbor, unconscious, her mother, Catherine, is determined to piece together the missing weeks of her daughter's life, even if it means dismantling the lives of other reputable families on the island. Told primarily through four women at the forefront of the story, and with time shifts before Emily goes missing and after she is found, Out of the Deep is a story about a small community where secrets wash ashore with the changing tide. I've had short stories published on LiteraryMama.com and in the Houston Right Space Anthology. I wrote a satirical parenting essay for BrainchildMagazine.com, as well as a variety of news and feature articles for the Galveston County Daily News. I teach high school at the Kincaid School in Houston, and I can bake a pretty awesome chocolate cake with my three little girls, Macy, Ruby, and Sadie. Thanks for your consideration, Kristen Bird. I love that query letter because writing a query letter for a multi-POV novel with an ensemble cast is incredibly challenging. My latest novel has got like seven POV characters, sometimes told from third person close, sometimes told from omniscient. And I'm so glad I didn't have to write a query letter for that because I was just like, I wouldn't even know how to do it. And when Cece pitched it, she had to kind of figure out how to do that. And it was difficult, but I love that you didn't try and break down who all the different POV characters are. In your pitch, you stayed close to who you saw as the main character, but what the agent got was that it was multi-POV and what they got were those time shifts that we would start when she's found and then keep going back to the past and the buildup as to what happened. So I completely see why this landed interest in the story. And actually, I think that one piece of advice that I remember reading about at one point was to name as few characters as you can in the query. And so that's why I only really give the name of Emily. And otherwise, it's just the three other mothers. Yeah, and that's enough. To know that they're mothers is enough to know that the stakes are high, that they're invested. And to refer to Emily's mother, you know that her mother will care about things and the stakes will be high there. So you don't need to say this person's name, that person's name, because it just confuses the hell out of people. So I completely love that. Would you mind, Kristen, if we made that available on our Ko-fi platform for our supporters just to be able to look at it in writing? Would that be okay? Yes, of course. Wonderful. Thank you very much. And I don't suppose you want to share with us your breakdown of Leon Moriarty's that whole thing. Have you still got that or or don't you even have that document? 
find it. If I can find it, I will send you a screenshot of it. <laughs> that would um, be. I think I sketched it in a sketchbook, actually. If you so could we'll look. If you could do that, that would be amazing because there are other people out there who might want to do the same and aren't quite sure how to approach it. And I know when I was writing my first novel, something that I kept coming back to was the help and the secret life of bees because it tackled sort of the same themes and we were looking at the same things. And I was constantly going, okay, how did she do this? And I also remember breaking it down, but I do not for the life of me know where any of that is because it was before I had Scrivener. And I think most of that was in notebooks. So if you can find that for us, we would love to see that. Something else that I wanted to chat to you about that we kind of had a discussion on on email was you said you're a bit of a control freak and I can 100% connect with that because I'm a Capricorn, A-type control freak, self-confessed. And you were talking a bit about how when a book comes out, there are things that you cannot do yourself. As a writer, you can write the best damn book you possibly can. You can edit it a gazillion times until you're editing it in your sleep. But the time comes for you to put up your hands and step away from the keyboard and hand it over to other people. So could you tell us a bit about that experience and your advice for emerging writers for when it comes to that moment in their careers? Yes. So I will say that it's important to rely on your agent. So I mean, not to bombard them with questions, you know, a million times a day, but I would send questions occasionally that would say something like, should I be doing something right now? Or do you have uh, anything you suggest? And sometimes my agent would say, yes, you can go ahead and make a list of possible essays that you could write about or topics that you could write about for publicity, that kind of thing. And other times she would say, no, sit back and enjoy or work on something else. And so really listening to your agent is key because they know the rhythm of the publishing industry better than we can because this is their full-time job. They do it all the time. The other thing is I had to learn to be okay with the fact that a lot was going on behind the scenes that I just didn't know about. And so even though I might not hear from the marketing team or publicity very often over a course of a few months, that was okay because they were still working on my book. They were still supporting it. So just reassuring myself about that was really important for me as well. And so I am very cognizant of the fact that so many people's hard work went into this book and I will never even know some of them. And so I'm very appreciative of that fact too. Yeah, so much of publishing feels like that analogy of you just see this calm duck floating on a lake and you don't see the legs going like the dickens underneath the water. And there's periods of long silence and you're like, have I been forgotten? Does nobody remember me? Does nobody care about me? And then you suddenly hear from them and, and they give you an update on all the things that have been happening. And you're like, holy heck, that's a lot of stuff that's been happening. And there'll be weeks that they don't need anything from you. And suddenly you get a list of 20 things they need from you in two days time. So that can feel a bit overwhelming as well. But like you say, the trust in your team is incredibly, incredibly important and not always something easy for control freaks among us to do. <laughs> right. <laughs> so, yes, and to keep writing on a new project is really important. Yeah. That's what I kept going back to. I was like, if I don't feel like I have anything else to do, I can work on the next thing <laughs> because I know that I will want, I'll be happy for myself later that past Kristen put in this hard work already. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Because sitting waiting, things are out of your control anyway. So if you sit and just keep refreshing your inbox, that's not very productive. 
Whereas right. going, okay, I've done as much of this as I can. Let me focus on something else. So in terms of your next project, how soon after getting this book accepted, did you begin working on that? And did you find the experience to be wildly different to the first novel? I started working on that before I got this book signed, actually. And that was, again, kind of a mental health thing for me. I needed something to do because I had already done all the editing with my agent and I was just waiting. So I started on that before I signed and I have, it's actually coming out because I signed a two book deal. So it comes out March, 2023. So it's really good that I did that work because I've heard of the sophomore slump. (laughs) But because I had already written so much of it before I even signed the two book deal, I didn't feel that pressure as I was writing it. Like I think some people do. I am feeling that pressure with book three now (laughs) that is not sold. But you know that, oh my, now I feel like eyes are watching, even when I'm writing that unreadable first draft, even though they're not. It's just that sense of, you know, that voice in the back of your head. It's more voices than just mine now. (laughs) So the second book actually was pretty easy for me to write just because of the way that I had started it without that pressure on me. But I am finding the third book more challenging. Yeah. So for our listeners, you know, it doesn't feel like it when you're working on that first book to get it published. But there's huge freedom in it. There's no expectation yet. You haven't been slotted into this little box in terms of what kind of author you are and what your author brand is and what kind of book you are expected to keep churning out in the future. And there's no huge deadline as well. There's a lot of freedom to be had in that. And yeah, it does get a bit harder as you go along, which is weird because you expect it to get easier. But that's not my experience of it. Yes, I agree. I've heard you say on here before that the signpost keeps moving (laughs) or the goalpost keeps moving. And I completely agree with that. Back when I was 25 and I wrote my first novel as a creative writing thesis in my master's program, I felt a lot of freedom in that I was just writing it to finish my degree. And I had these professors who were giving me input, but they were so sweet and wonderful. So it, it was just a really pleasurable experience. And then I tried to query it and I got nowhere, you know, and then I wrote a second novel. I started about a few months after my twins were born because I needed to go be alone at a coffee shop for an hour (laughs) once a week. And that also, that one, I did feel a lot more devastated when no one wanted that one because I had spent like four years of my free time, any free time I got on it. But it was also incredible practice for me to learn how to write the arc of a novel and a lot about characterization and that kind of thing. So I've always just wanted an agent. And then I got the agent. And then I just wanted to get a publishing deal. And then you just want that next thing. And my novel is coming out this week. And so that feels huge. And I just want it to be received really well. (laughs) And on and on it goes. So I think that it's important to learn to be content in the season that you're in. And I think that looks different for different people. For me, this week, it meant that I told I told my girls, mommy needs lots of hugs this week, <laughs> you know? And so my one of my eight-year-olds came in last night when I was getting ready for bed, and she was like, you said you need lots of hugs. And she just came up and wrapped her arms around me. And so I think it's using moments like that to say, I'm okay where I'm at. 
and whatever happens next is going to be okay. And I definitely put rhythms in my life so that I have something to look forward to that has nothing to do with writing. Like every Friday night is like pizza night and movie night. And we all eat in front of the TV, which we don't normally do. And we laugh together and we just like hang out as a family. And I know this Friday night, even if my book was a total bomb, which I'm sure it won't be, (laughs) but even if it was, like that's what I'm doing Friday night. And I know that that is my support system and I will be okay regardless. So I think that's really important for writers and just people to be aware of is that idea of let's try to be content where we're at in this moment and let's find ways or things in our life that can allow us to do that. Excellent advice. I hope our listeners are taking notes. I'm taking notes and I hope you are too. Are you looking for beta readers, some of whom might potentially become writing group members down the line? Are you wanting to be matched up with those writing in a similar genre or time zone so they can critique your work as you critique theirs at the same time? Your manuscript doesn't have to be complete to sign up for this 3,000 word evaluation. This particular matchup will be open to registrations from now until the 2nd of June, with the matchup emails going out on the 3rd of June. For more information and to register, go to biancamaray.com, look for the beta reader matchup page, and please spread the word. The more writers we have signed up, the better the matches will be. Today's guest is an author, screenwriter and journalist. She currently lives in California where she is developing her books for television. It's my pleasure to welcome Eliza Jane Brazier. Eliza, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. Pleasure to be here. It's wonderful to have you here and you know your book only arrived yesterday (laughs) Late afternoon. So I I try and read all the books before I interview the authors. And this arrived like at about five o'clock my time yesterday. And I had a kind of busy evening. But then I started reading and I was reading and I was reading. And I really needed to get to bed. But I kept reading. And for our listeners, pardon my French. If you do have your children in the car, now's the time to quickly turn down the sound. But this is a hell of a mindfuck of a book. It's just such a glorious mindfuck. It was amazing. So let's break down a few things first. Could you, for our listeners, just give them an overview of the concept of the book? Yeah, so it's called Good Rich People. And basically the idea is there's this sort of bored, wealthy couple that live in like the hills in Hollywood. And to entertain themselves, they play this game where they invite a self-made success story to live in their guest house. And then they sort of conspire to ruin this person's life. So by sort of like this crazy accident, their target actually ends up sort of being not who they think. And so everyone just is playing a game with each other for different reasons. And it all kind of just gets crazier and crazier. It has explosive consequences. (laughs) So on the podcast, we have two agents who often give our listeners critique and feedback based on their query letter and their opening pages. And generally the consensus is stay away from a prologue. Most times we read a prologue and we're like, nope, this prologue is just not doing it for you. And you start immediately with a prologue and we have just for the sake of our listeners here, it's the one thing that isn't sort of stamped with the name and we assume it's Lila and there's blood in the fountain turning the water an eerie rust color and it says I call someone to drain it and there's someone who arrives 
who is looking at this fountain and is like, is this blood in the fountain? Where did this come from? And the person, you know, who's speaking to them is just kind of completely clueless. It says he grasps around for a moment, searching for something, then grunts, removes his arm from the water, shakes it out. Little droplets sting my flesh. Here's a 4.7 rating on Yelp. I thought I could trust him. I should have known better. He was probably rated by middle class people. <laughs> Which was just hilarious. So can you talk us through, was the prologue always going to be there or was it something that you added down the line? Yeah, it definitely wasn't there originally. So I rewrote this whole novel like twice. And I ultimately, you know, the thing about like a prologue, I think when you're querying agents, I kind of understand why you would give that advice because often a prologue doesn't really fit with the rest of the story. Like it'll be in a different voice or it won't introduce you to a character or it kind of gives you a thematic or like a concept but I do think like often with thrillers it's an easy way to make you think to give you an idea of where you're going and to create tension I think for example Big Little Lies that novel sort of starts with you know that something's happened at the school and you know the police are investigating and all this and then they go back to introducing you to all the characters and because it's like a thriller I mean if they didn't have that you might think it was a completely different book so I do think that with thrillers sometimes it it can make sense to have a prologue however if you were querying an agent you might just want to like keep that in your back pocket and start with the characters and then maybe you know later on down the line you could say I think this might work well here sneak in your prologue down the line (laughs) once you've already signed with them and it's too late for them right so if you rewrote this novel twice could you take us through that process like what changed in the rewriting oh my gosh so much this novel was inspired in a lot of ways by my own experiences like I lived below the poverty line for almost a decade and I really wanted to talk about income disparity and you know I guess just that kind of thing so I initially was writing it like during the pandemic I had pitched an outline or I had to submit an outline, I should say rather, to my editor. And so I felt like I had to stick to that, which I I didn't and was kind of a bad idea. And also because I was writing about something that was so personal, I feel like the first few drafts were just bogged down and very, it wasn't entertaining. (laughs) So basically I wrote a couple of different versions. My poor little editor, you know, was giving me these letters trying to like sort of encourage me. And I just felt like it wasn't good enough and it needed something like basically it needed like a hook. It needed kind of like a, you know, like time clock. It needed higher stakes. And so I had this idea of the whole game aspect of the novel. And I pitched that to my editor and she was like, yeah, that sounds awesome. And I literally rewrote the novel in four weeks in 2020, right before Thanksgiving. And I changed everything. And I just took like all different elements. And, you know, this is often what I do when I rewrite stuff is like, I'll sort of take elements of what's already there, but I'll just turn it way, way up, you know? So it went from in the original version, like they went and played paintball and in this version it's they have this huge party in their house where they're shooting each other with gold dust like it's just crazy so yeah I just kind of made it way more extreme let's say and I also added like the more humorous aspect just because it's like a heavy subject matter you know so I felt like it needed that yeah and that's the thing you know when I started reading this I was thinking what is it about us that keeps reading because on the podcast we often talk about unlikable narrators and how difficult it is to sell that kind of story because you need to get readers invested and generally you need to give readers something that they can relate to in the character 
so that they're on board with them, like some kind of vulnerability or whatever. So with Lila, you give us zero vulnerability <laughs> at all. She's just awful. She's just so awful. And yet I just could not put this down. And I kept reading and I kept reading and I was trying to figure out what it was about her that made it so compelling. So I feel like you left a lot of things unanswered. You dropped a lot of clues. And certainly as a reader, I was very intrigued by, you know, what was happening and the plot. And I kept turning the pages. But she has this really wry sense of humor. I don't even, does she realize she's funny or does she not realize she's funny? I don't know if she thinks she's funny. I think because I'm okay. So I'm like kind of developing this for TV. I feel like in her relationship with another character who kind of they I guess you never see really in the book. You only see in flashbacks. I feel like she knew she was funny with her because they were friends. But I, I don't think she necessarily knows she's funny. But it's interesting about Lila because I, I, you know, I like see your point. I do feel like the thing that maybe kind of helps it to work is that Graham and Margot are so much worse than her. Number one. Right. They always say, like, if you want to be able to have an anti-hero, make the villain so much worse. Right. And then another thing, I was talking to a producer about this when when we were pitching, kind of selling the option. And he said to me, oh, what do you think Lila wants? And I was like, well, I think she wants to maybe be like a good person or da, da, da. you know, I was just trying to like come up with something. And he was like, no, what she wants is she wants to be loved. And I think that is that is true. It actually surprised me. And I was like thinking when I was like, no, you're right, because she wants Graham to love her. Like she wants to be accepted. Like she knows she's not really a good person, but she's not as bad as her husband, you know? So she's kind of in this relationship where she's trying to get love, which I think is relatable, right? <laughs> yeah, that's absolutely. But that's only something we find out about her a bit, you know, later on. And I'm just trying to think about these throwaway lines that she says that just really makes me... It was making me kill myself laughing. I'm just trying to find one of the one. It was, oh, she says, don't mention to my husband where we met. Let's pretend you're an old friend, someone I can trust. I can trust you, can't I? And the other one goes, you just met me, she says, which proves her trustworthiness. Exactly. I straightened my spine. I can't trust anyone I know. And that was hilarious. So she's like, yeah, I can trust you because you're a complete stranger because I can't trust anyone I know. And it's these kind of lines. There's, there's a lot of social commentary in here. There's this, you can see that you're someone who really observes people. There's like a razor sharp observation that you bring to this, that this book is very much social commentary. And I think that's where these nuggets of wisdom sort of are in. Is this something that, you know, you're aware of in your work that, that you try and lean into or, or not really? Well, you know, I think it depends on the book, but I, yeah, I'm definitely like, I find people so funny. I think that the things that people do or they say, or like when people think they're pulling one over on you, but it's like, I don't know. It's just people are very funny. And then I think with this book, especially like social commentary aspect, I have a lot of probably pent up rage and frustration with extremely wealthy people. And I really just wanted to kind of like take the piss out of them. So there's definitely a lot of that happening. And, and I think maybe that that's one of the reasons why we, we keep reading her, even though we dislike her so intensely, is there's this fascination with these supremely wealthy people who are just so privileged and their heads are so far up their own asses that they just have got zero clue of, of things that are happening. And it's kind of like looking at a car wreck. It's like you can't look away from it <laughs> because she's just such a wreck. Totally. <laughs> 
Yeah. So, so can you tell us a bit about your screenwriting? How difficult is it to switch these hats? Because, you know, screenwriting is a very different art form to, to novel writing. You know, novel writing, we say show, don't tell, you know, bring in your interiority, characters, thoughts, their feelings, you have dialogue, all these other things. And then obviously when you're writing a screenplay, you know, that's a very different beast. And so do you write each of your novels fully planning to adapt them for the screen? Or is that something that's just kind of evolved? Well, so to be totally honest, so my the novel prior to this one was If I Disappear. And I actually, at that time, I moved to Los Angeles and I wanted to write for television. Like that's what I wanted to do. So, you know, I did what I always do, which is like I researched ruthlessly, right? So I just got every book, you know, I was listening to every podcast, just like studying how do you get into this industry? And basically I kind of realized I was like this, it's impossible. It's so hard. You could go be a writer's assistant and I'm like, older, I'd probably have a hard time getting that kind of job and you could work, you know, 80 hours a week and maybe get to have a few years, you could, you know, have like a credit on one script. So I had published books before in YA a long time before, but hadn't for like a really long time. So I had this idea, which became If I Disappear. And I was like, oh, that'd be such a cool show, but I can't sell it as a show. So I wrote it as a book. And then when it came the time to sort of sell an option, I was really fortunate that my literary agent hooked me up with this amazing film agent who was like totally on board with me writing, which they won't always be. And then, you know, we spoke to multiple production companies and one or two were willing to have me write. Some won't, like some were like, no way, you know, but you try to find one that is willing to do it. Yeah. So that's how I ended up doing it. And then kind of like what you said, I mean, screenwriting, it is, it's a lot different. I feel like I'm kind of like, <laughs> I was going to say I'm not good at either. I'm kind of midway between screen and novels. Like I feel like I write pretty short for novels and I, I have to really kind of expand. But then the thing about screenwriting is you have to do so much with so little. You can't really hide as much behind a bad sentence or a, something, a sentence that doesn't do anything. You know, like sometimes you'll transcribe the dialogue in your novels into a script and you'll be like, oh my gosh, there is so much filler here. So it's very tricky. And then the other tricky aspect is, and I think this is honestly the most tricky, is that when I'm writing a book, I'm working with an, one editor. I just have to please them. They're the one who ultimately give you your contract in a way and everything, right? But if I'm working on a script, then I have to please 10 producers, 20 executives. Everyone has different opinions. You're, there's so many constraints, you know, because somebody wants it this way. Somebody has to end like this and we can't have that happen now. And it's so it's very tricky. Quite honestly, that sounds like a nightmare. That yeah. sounds terrible because the one nice the one nice thing about writing is that, you know, you don't like have a boss per se or colleagues per se. You know, you, you'll have an editor and an agent and people who you answer to, but you get to do the shit you want to do within certain constraints. And then suddenly having to consult everyone and have to please everyone. It's like, why do you want to be on that side of it, Eliza? Why don't you just want to write damn novels? Well, dude, I, I mean, I love, you know, I grew up outside of LA. My parents are from Los Angeles. I always wanted to be an actress. I used to do theater. I actually really love film and cinema. I mean, of course I love books too. I mean, don't get me wrong, but it's definitely like, it just would be so cool if it would work, right? When it works, it's amazing, but it's very hard. And you can understand why a lot of stuff doesn't get made or why certain scripts aren't 
good. It's 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 a really tough industry. But to be honest, you know, I mean, this is a writing podcast. I find it hard to to write stuff that pleases my editor too. It's not like I ever just sit down and shoot for the stars and follow my heart. <laughs> You know, it's like, I really have to approach it for me personally. I have to approach it always as a business. And a lot of times I lose sight of that. And then I, you know, I end up having to redo something. Yeah, to be honest. (laughs) Yeah, no, definitely. But uh, I mean, it's still, it's like one agent, one editor, whereas this consultative (laughs) process, it sounds, ah, so what I love is that you said you'd started writing it as something else and then you came up with the hook and it's a hell of a hook. So, you know, before you came up with the game, was the story just, you know, someone living with a very wealthy person and looking at those class differences? What was the difference there before you came up with that hook? Because reading this, I honestly thought that you were sitting there one day and you were like, kind of like the Hunger Games, but in real time and for rich people and that you first came up with the hook. So for me, it's very interesting that it was like reverse engineered into the hook. Yeah. I mean, like I said, I think it was in a way it was pulled from like personal experience. And I will kind of explain that even more. At that time, I was living in a duplex in the Hollywood Hills. I was in the the underneath kind of flat area, right? So it was like this dark, like built into the side of the mountain. It was actually holding up the other property, right? Which was nice. And this sort of like couple lived there who were very successful. But for me, even though it was this sort of dark one bedroom kind of creepy place, it was a nice place I'd ever lived in my, I mean, well, I guess except when I was a kid, but as an adult. Yeah. And so I was kind of, I guess, inspired a lot by that. Parasite had just done really well. So I was able to kind of sell it by using that as, you know, as a comparison. So I think originally, if I'm not mistaken, it was just like these wealthy people that had someone living downstairs and it turned out to be not who they thought it was. And the characters were way different. They weren't as hateable. Like they were much more grounded in real people. You know, I made it a lot crazier. And that in itself is interesting because most times people start with like hateable characters and then you get told by your agent and your editor, I can't tell this because they aren't likable or, you know, and it bugs the shit out of me that it's always women characters have to be nice and they have to be relatable, but it's completely fine for men to, you know, not be like that. And I love that you started off with them nice and it turned the other way as opposed to it started off with them being awful and then you had to soften them to make them more palatable. Yeah, I mean, I think, I don't think there were, I wouldn't say they were, I guess, nice, but they were a much more subtle bad, maybe more just inconsiderate or or not, you know, unaware. Yeah, just, just oblivious. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. completely. So one last thing before I have to let you go. So for our listeners, you know, on the podcast, we're always talking about certain rules. And as a creative writing instructor, I'm always teaching my students, you know, certain rules. And one of them is beginning sentences so that you don't keep repeating I, I, me, me at the beginning of each sentence. And this is something that Eliza did here to really great effect. So again, every time I give you guys a rule, understand that there are awesome ways to break it. So long as you're breaking it for a reason. So we have here, I get so bored sometimes. I think I'll do anything to stop it. I decide to make Graham dinner. Three sentences later, I decide to make spaghetti because it's European and I think I can manage it on my own. 
Two sentences later, I need to hire someone before Margot does. I go to my closet to choose an outfit for the market. I've always wanted a signature color. I select a gray cashmere top and gray cashmere bottoms. Not the same shade of gray because I don't want to look like an insane person. I accessorize with the right amount of diamonds. So tons of these sentences that begin consecutively with I, I, I. And with any other piece, I would workshop this with a creative writing student and say you need to mix up your sentences because you don't want to keep starting with I. But this works so perfectly for Lila because she's so self-absorbed. She's such a narcissist that, of course, the I, I, I and the me, me, me takes front and center. So, you know, if that's a rule you're going to break, make sure you break it with this kind of character who, of course, you know, their worldview is completely self-absorbed and everything, you know, that they take front and center stage in everything that they think about. So, that's something for you to have a look at as well. But for our listeners, we will put good rich people on our bookshop.org affiliate page. If you go and buy it there, you're supporting the podcast, you're supporting an author, and you're supporting an independent bookstore. So everybody wins. Eliza, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us today. Thank you so much for having me. It was my pleasure. I can't wait <laughs> to see this on television. Oh I can't wait to see... It's, it's like going to be amazing. And I am now trying to book out the rest of the day so I can go and finish this book. Thank so you. thank you for that. And that's it for today's episode. If you have any questions about writing or publishing, please email me at theshitaboutwriting at gmail.com and I'll do my best to get them answered for you. I hope you'll join us for next week's show. In the meantime, keep at it. Remember, it just takes one yes. Here's the thing. Ever wonder why aspiring authors spend so much time trying to crack the code about how to get published? That's because no one who is in the daily grind like me has put all the pieces together in one place. It's Carly Waters here, and as your senior literary agent on the podcast with 15 years of experience in publishing, selling books, and teaching the business of publishing, I'm here to give you the clarity that will turn this hobby into a career. Inside my course, The Author's Publishing Playbook, we have monthly live Q&A sessions to cover your specific issues, but for the rest, there are over 40 video lessons that equal 10 hours of learning with professionally edited transcripts. The course will solve all your writerly problems, except write your book for you. That's on you. My course is a masterclass designed to teach writers how to prepare, pitch, publish, and promote their book in today's competitive publishing landscape. It's for career-driven writers, aspiring and published, who want to understand how to succeed in the business of books. There are over 20 worksheets, downloads, and plug-and-play templates for editing, querying, and marketing. You get lifetime access for the entire six-module course as soon as you purchase. As new content gets added, you have access to that as well. Don't forget, there's a mobile app on top of computer access you can learn on the go. Get started today to gain the career you've only dreamed about. And you guys get a discount. So at checkout, carlywaters.com course, use code POD15. That's code POD15 when you check out for 15% off. That's carlywaters.com course, use code POD15. That's code POD15 when you check out for 15% off. See you inside the course. Hi, everyone. This is Cece. If you're a fan of books with hooks, then you've probably heard me use the term interiority. I often catch myself saying things like, these pages need more interiority, or the interiority here needs work. And that's because interiority is a super important element of storytelling. It's what makes books unique. But as it turns out, a lot of you have questions about what exactly is interiority and how to properly weave it into stories, which is why I'm teaching my popular writing interiority class in a new two-day format. 
We'll meet on Thursday, June 6 at 8 p.m. via Zoom to cover all things interiority, including the difference between interiority and emotions, how interiority is different from telling, how to leverage interiority into plot points, how to strike a balance between interiority and mystery, and more. And then we'll meet again for a live cozy Q&A session on Monday, June 10th, also at 8 p.m. via Zoom, in which you'll have the opportunity to turn your camera on if you choose. If you're interested, check out the link in my bio on Instagram, and I hope to see you there. Here's the thing. Ever wonder why aspiring authors spend so much time trying to crack the code about how to get published? That's because no one who is in the daily grind like me has put all the pieces together in one place. It's Carly Waters here, and as your senior literary agent on the podcast with 15 years of experience in publishing, selling books, and teaching the business of publishing, I'm here to give you the clarity that will turn this hobby into a career. Inside my course, The Author's Publishing Playbook, we have monthly live Q&A sessions to cover your specific issues, but for the rest, there are over 40 video lessons that equal 10 hours of learning with professionally edited transcripts. The course will solve all your writerly problems, except write your book for you. That's on you. My course is a masterclass designed to teach writers how to prepare, pitch, publish, and promote their book in today's competitive publishing landscape. It's for career-driven writers, aspiring and published, who want to understand how to succeed in the business of books. There are over 20 worksheets, downloads, and plug-and-play templates for editing, querying, and marketing. You get lifetime access for the entire six-module course as soon as you purchase. As new content gets added, you have access to that as well. Don't forget, there's a mobile app on top of computer access you can learn on the go. Get started today to gain the career you've only dreamed about. And you guys get a discount. So at checkout, carlywaters.com course, use code POD15. That's code POD15 when you check out for 15% off. That's carlywaters.com course, use code POD15. That's code POD15 when you check out for 15% off. See you inside the course. Hi, everyone. This is Cece. If you're a fan of books with hooks, then you've probably heard me use the term interiority. I often catch myself saying things like, these pages need more interiority, or the interiority here needs work. And that's because interiority is a super important element of storytelling. It's what makes books unique. But as it turns out, a lot of you have questions about what exactly is interiority and how to properly weave it into stories, which is why I'm teaching my popular writing interiority class in a new two-day format. We'll meet on Thursday, June 6 at 8 p.m. via Zoom to cover all things interiority, including the difference between interiority and emotions, how interiority is different from telling, how to leverage interiority into plot points, how to strike a balance between interiority and mystery, and more. And then we'll meet again for a live cozy Q&A session on Monday, June 10th, also at 8 p.m. via Zoom, in which you'll have the opportunity to turn your camera on if you choose. If you're interested, check out the link in my bio on Instagram, and I hope to see you there.